The Book Love Foundation podcast is produced by the Teacher Learning Sessions, connecting teachers with ideas, experts, and each other. Poor readers got low scores, so then they were taken out of classes and put into classes where they were given more choppy test prep, which then in turn made them hate reading more, which then in turn, you know, it was just, it was a death spiral. Welcome to the Book Love Foundation podcast. I'm Penny Kittle, and I'm your host. Today, I am thrilled to bring to you a conversation I recently had with my friend Kelly Gallagher, who has taught for 31 years, 30 of those at Magnolia High School in Anaheim, California, where he is currently teaching 9th and 12th grade and helping lead teachers in their understandings of literacy. He is considered one of the leading voices in literacy education, certainly at the secondary level. He has inspired me and so many others to do the best work we can for our students. Kelly's been a part of the California Reading and Literature Project, the South Basin Writing Project at Cal State University Long Beach, and part of the Puente Project, a University of California outreach program that prepares underrepresented high school students for transition into universities. For several years, he also taught secondary literacy courses as an adjunct professor at Cal State University Fullerton, lucky new teachers, I have to say. And most recently, he served as president of the secondary reading group of ILA, the International Literacy Association. I have to say, as someone who wrote for that journal, Kelly was a pretty careful editor and certainly helped me write a better article. I know the hours he has put in to lead all of us. You probably know him as the one who created AOW, Article of the Week. You can still find those at his website, kellygallagher.org. And each week, I seem to see one of those popping up in a classroom in my high school. I know he has impacted thousands of students through his work with nonfiction articles. Kelly is also the author of six books, including Read Aside, which is really the heart of this conversation that we're having today. You probably have it on your shelf somewhere. Now let's listen to how Kelly talks about the writing of it, the thinking behind it, and where that has led him today. Kelly Gallagher, I can't think of someone um, who had kind of shook up my thinking about reading more dramatically than you did with um, Read Aside. I was kind of on that I was on that track of we are killing a love of reading, but I remember seeing an advertisement for the book and Stenhouse had um, the entire book online. You could read it for free. And I clicked to the link and I didn't move from this seat until I had read the entire book. And I, the whole time, I didn't know you very well, hardly at all. I'd seen you once um, presented a workshop but I had read Teaching Adolescent Writers and you were, you know, kind of kind and friendly in that book and read aside, I felt like you just stepped out and said, I'm done being nice about this. And the reason that I kind of intro like that is because I went back then and read your first two books on reading, which I hadn't read, Reading Reasons and Deeper Reading. Deeper Reading in particular, I spent a lot of time with. And I realized that Read Aside had to have been a big move for you as well. So I was hoping you would start just by talking about that evolution from, you know, your first book through to that one. 
Well, I, I agree with your assessment that Redecide has a different tone uh, than my first two books. That, that book really was born out of a couple factors. Number one was that we were really, you know, up to our elbows in this NCLB era of testing and testing and testing. And then when we're done testing, testing some more. Uh, and concurrently at that moment in my life, I had two daughters who were in the school system. Um, and although my daughters did not come up in an affluent household, uh, they were reading rich because we would always go to libraries or bookstores. Um, but I saw the effects uh, that the schools, from very well-intentioned and very well-meaning adults, uh, their practices, I saw the effects that their practices were having on my own daughters. And so I, I, I was concerned that, that my daughter's love of reading was being killed. And of course, uh, as a high school teacher during that time as well, I saw that what I was being asked to do really seemed sort of counterintuitive to me uh, towards this mission of getting kids to, to, to love reading like I, I love it. Um, I saw a lot of novels being set aside for test prep. Um, you know, I saw in my own system and in many schools that I visited that poor readers were, were put in a death spiral. Uh, poor readers got low scores, so then they were taken out of classes and put into classes where they were given more choppy test prep, which then in turn made them hate reading more, which then in turn, you know, it was just, it was a death spiral. It was sort of the opposite treatment than I think young readers needed. And uh, I, I do talk and read aside a little bit about this concern that when it comes to adolescent readers is that a, sort of a, an apartheid system was being set up in our schools, that kids who were suffering from word poverty and idea poverty were, were being given treatments that I think would ensure that they would not become readers. And so, yeah, I was, there, there was a little anger that fueled that book, uh, but it was more deeply seated and just genuine concern about the non-readers that I was seeing in my classroom every day. Um, you know, I think in that book, I also talk a little bit about, you know, Judith Langer's beating the odds schools. And when she looked at schools that were, that were, you know, if you looked at their demographics, you wouldn't think they would score very well, but they actually did score well. And she, she found that, that these schools did not, you know, go all in on test prep, that there was a balance um, that, that was needed. And uh, in my look at the schools around the country, uh, that balance was, was completely out of whack. I agree. And I think that one of the things that struck me in Redeside was that, yes, you were laying the, the foundation of how the school systems and the NCLB practices, et cetera, had impacted this, but you also really looked hard at what teachers were doing in their own classrooms and the decisions they were making in a way that made me as a teacher say, he believes I have power over this. And I kept thinking, you know, I was already completely on the other end, you know, almost all independent reading as practice. But I knew that I had so many colleagues that were stuck with, they aren't understanding 
To Kill a Mockingbird, so I'll read it aloud. Or they don't understand it, so I will drill it down into such tiny, tiny parts that it will take me eight or nine weeks, but then they'll understand it. And I thought their their whole frame was focused on understanding that one book instead of developing readers. And it felt like your book said, there are some things you can do. Because it wasn't just how schools are killing a love of reading, but how classroom practices can, even with the best of intentions. Well, I talk a lot in that book about finding the sweet spot. And I say, you know, there's uh, I, there's a chapter, I think, on, on the dangers of overteaching, and, and I've said this many times, but I think I came to the conclusion that if you're spending nine weeks teaching a novel, it's not a novel anymore. It's a nine-week worksheet. Um, so I talk a lot about, and, and, and I actually believe I was a little bit guilty of this, you know, earlier in my career, um, I would try to teach all things in all books, and in, in that approach, the book gets lost, the art of the book gets lost. Um, and so I do talk in that book a lot about overteaching. Uh, and then there's another segment of that book where I talk about underteaching, that there is a difference uh, between assigning a core work and teaching a core work. Uh, and I think when books are overtaught and when books are undertaught, that there is an equal danger there of turning kids off to reading. And so I, I, I talk a lot about trying to find that sweet spot, trying to you know, focus on one or two things as we're sharing this novel together. And, uh, and let's, let's see if we can get this done in three weeks, four weeks. Yeah. So in Deeper Reading, I remember reading about you taking your daughters to a baseball game and how the difference between how they would learn to understand baseball was sitting beside someone who understood it really well so that you could guide them in their understanding. Do you remember this? I do remember that anecdote. It is the, it is the anecdote that leads that book. And it is, uh, I don't know, somehow it struck a chord with a lot of people because a lot of people uh, bring it up to me. That's funny because what I immediately pictured was that um, how we teach anyone to love anything is to let them be with whatever it is. You know, when I taught my daughter to do cartwheels on the lawn, we did lots of practicing out there on the lawn, but I didn't have any grading sheets and I didn't um, try to give her part after part. I let her watch and practice. And the whole point was that um, that opening anecdote was exactly what was missing in Read Aside in that students weren't given time to just live with books. They were being tested and tested on parts of it, which would make anyone hate it. If you test me right now on the elements of baseball, of which I know none, and then your approach, that's my pre-assessment to getting me to love baseball is to just give me the rule book and make me take tests, I'll never love it. Right. Well, first, I, I, and I agree, and I'll come back to this point, but I think the first and the first thing you're really getting at is this idea that the way to get somebody to love baseball is to sit next to somebody who loves baseball. Uh, and the way to get somebody to love reading is to sit next to somebody who loves reading. Um, and so this raises issues of the teacher being an active and involved reader and a teacher who models that love and brings that passion and love uh, into the classroom every single day. Um, it does. That's actually true across research of anything, the contagious passion of the mentor. Right. 
So the second part of, of your question really gets at this idea of we don't raise readers by quizzing them by getting out the red pen. We raise readers by giving them uh, interesting books to read, to give them a chance to talk about what they're reading, to value their own thinking, uh, to try to set up classrooms in which they generate their own thinking rather than answering the teacher's questions. Yeah, I can't imagine uh, sitting at a baseball game with my daughters and saying, okay, the third inning is over. Let's have a quiz on what's happened in the game so far. Exactly. And so in that book, um, the part I really disagreed with you on was the 50-50. 50% of the time kids would read independently, 50% of the time you would choose the text, but you said in the book that was due to the curriculum in your school district. Is that correct? Yeah, I was really born out of the idea that in my school district, um, it wasn't 50-50, it was 100-0. <laughs> yeah. uh, it, was, it was, okay, here are the core works you're going to read as a whole class. First, we're going to read Animal Farm, then we're going to read Romeo and Juliet, then we're going to read To Kill a Mockingbird. And, and you know, it was like in many districts, a curriculum map that was laid out. Uh, my concern, of course, uh, when I wrote Read Aside, and I've even shifted further. But when I sat and wrote that book, um, this idea that maybe half the reading your kids do in your classroom should not be whole class, in, whole class novel instruction was a pretty radical uh, idea in my world and in many of the schools that I have visited around the country. Uh, my concern, of course, is that when kids get hard book, hard book, hard book, hard book, and it's always teachers' questions, teachers' questions, uh, to me, this is a recipe to kill readers. Uh, and so that 50-50 that proposal in, in Read Aside was really my first stab at bringing this plea out into the open to, to start to consider giving kids a more balanced reading diet yeah, I, I did see it as very radical when I read it, um, mostly because the people in my school at the time were either programming what kids would read always, or there was no reading. So they would switch from a novel unit to a writing unit, and there was no reading during the writing unit. Right. So right. there were these long periods of dormancy. And the other piece is that I, I often say to teachers, we're not teaching books. We're teaching young readers and writers. Right. And matching the kid to the book is so critical. So when you're thinking of a core text, you know, the other side of what this was not just hard book, hard book, but for some of our readers, those books were average or not that hard. And they were bored three weeks into an eight-week study. Right. So I love that um, in the best of interest of students, you came out boldly with something that I'm certain is not common practice in schools, which is a 20-80 split. So talk to me about how you got there. First, I'd like to backtrack and say the conditions that you describe where teachers will finish a whole class novel and then, okay, no reading for the next four weeks while we do this writing unit is a separation of reading and writing I do not understand. As you know, as we both agree, it's the reading that actually makes kids better writers, and it's the writing that actually makes kids better readers. Exactly. Um, I still have trouble these days with this idea of, you know, this person over here is the reading teacher, and this person here uh, is the writing teacher. It's an artificial separation that I don't understand, and I know you agree with me on that. What I think is kids are different 
than they were just simply a few years ago. They're smart as heck, but uh, there's a there's a shift going on. Um, I've surveyed my seniors the last couple of years, and the percentage of students who have admitted that they have fake read their way to the twelfth grade is extraordinarily high, over ninety percent in each of my last two surveys. And 90, so, just for a minute, ninety percent of your seniors have not read prior to coming to your class? Well, in initial conferring with them, 90% uh, of them have admitted they have, quote, fake read their way to the 12th grade. So what I found when I conferred with kids is there was senior after senior who would say things to me like, I haven't read a book since sixth grade. I haven't read a book since seventh grade. I've never read a book. And so what I think is happening is, is, you know, I'm standing in a room full of adolescents who have become expert in reading spark notes or listening carefully to classroom conversation or group work uh, thinking and sort of pretending uh, that they have read the books that, that I've asked them to read. That's that's one of the big issues. The, the bigger issue, though, in my mind, isn't whether the kid fake read his way through To Kill a Mockingbird or not. The biggest issue in my mind is that the kid is approaching adulthood without even the without any desire whatsoever to become a reader, to to be a lifelong reader. Um, and so. Even though years ago I advocated for this 50-50 approach and I've been using it in my own classroom, I, re I came to the realization it's not enough. It's not enough with the kids that I have daily. They need even more uh, sort of opportunities to discover books that they're interested in. I have not abandoned whole class novel. I know it's sort of popular in some circles out there to abandon whole class novel completely, but I... I do believe I'm sort of uh, traditional uh, educationally. I do believe there's a value in teaching some worthy whole class novels and plays. I do believe that there is a level of discussion, a level of thinking, a level of argument, a level of writing that occurs when 35 kids have read a book that does not occur when three kids have read a book. But having said that, um, I think that whole class novel approach has failed in turning my kids onto reading. And so in the best interest of students, I, I describe how I have dialed down to the 2080 approach. And essentially what that means is this current school year, I'm only teaching two core works one each semester, which uh, is very different than had you visited my classroom three or four years ago. Uh, the rest of the reading diet is a lot of self-selected independent reading and uh, uh, mixed in with um, multiple book club experiences. Yeah, I have to echo that there is a distinct difference in understanding and building an argument around some big ideas in a book when you're listening to the thinking and responses of everyone in the room instead of just a couple people that you may have chosen to read a book with or you know your own thoughts about a book and I do love to be in a classroom where I'm watching all kids wrestling with the same passages the same ideas but I think we both recognize that 
the reason that work can't happen all the time is that it allows some kids to hitchhike alongside others and to simply wait for that discussion to tell them what the text means. And that what bothers me about that is that they don't develop the confidence in their own thinking and their own ideas. They're simply waiting for others to fill in that piece for them. Well, I think it's more of the issue of how whole class novels are taught. Um, kids now go read chapter two. I'll meet you. Now there's a quiz. Yeah. Implementing book clubs into my classroom has actually made me rethink the way I approach teaching whole class novels. I have them bring their thinking uh, to the discussions on each group meeting. So Yeah, that's great. And and I certainly um, saw the benefit this fall of having our students connected in book clubs um, and doing the shared Google Doc for their feedback to each other and their thinking and their questioning. Um, it was pretty interesting to watch that. Agreed, which raises other issues. I mean, when students are asked to read a book and share their thinking with the teacher, that's a different experience than when kids are asked to read a book and share their thinking with their peers. And when I say peers, I mean inside that classroom. And I also mean from my classroom in Anaheim to your classroom in New Hampshire, that when there is a peer audience, when there is a different audience other than the teacher, uh, it, it motivates a lot of kids who are traditionally unmotivated. Yeah, it definitely did in my room. And the other thing I saw happening on the Google Docs was that um, they had forgotten that you and I were part of those discussions. We weren't commenting. I, I made a point of not writing because I didn't want them to see me as part of the conversation. But I would watch how um, some of my students developed a voice on the Google Doc I'd never heard in the classroom. And they were talking to kids they didn't know from your school, but they were defending their positions um, and being able to articulate what those positions on the books were. Right. And, and you know, I think this gets into audience, issues of audience. And I think in the, in the infancy of sort of this technological age that, we, that we're teaching in, that this opens up possibilities for kids who are reading uh, to share their thinking with not only the other kids in the room, but maybe in a sister high school across town, or in our case, across the country. It just, it's gonna be interesting to see where the technology takes us as far as uh, kids being able to, to interact with their thinking. Yeah, I think it's been truly exciting, especially because our demographics are so different that my students are looking at things a little bit differently because your students see them differently. Yeah, I think same thing on our end. This is Kevin Carlson from the Teacher Learning Sessions. We are going to end this episode at this point in the conversation and bring you the second half in episode 10 which comes out tomorrow. Here is an excerpt. I don't start the year by thinking, what's my test question gonna be for To Kill a Mockingbird? I start my year by thinking, are these kids reading and writing enough? And if the answer is no, what am I gonna do about it? That's next time on the Book Love Foundation podcast, episode 10, part two of Penny's Conversation with Kelly Gallagher. If you enjoy the Book Love Foundation podcast and the work we are doing here, please join our email list at teacherlearningsessions.com slash go slash booklove. We will send you a list of the titles featured in each episode's book talk on the day the show comes out. Kelly shares some top titles from his classroom library in episode 10. 
When you join the email list, you will also receive our weekly newsletter, which includes podcast reviews, insider information about the Teacher Learning Sessions projects, and more. That's at teacherlearningsessions.com slash go slash booklove. Thanks for listening. I'm Kevin Carlson. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Book Love Foundation podcast. Can you help us reach potential donors? Send a link of this podcast to people you know and encourage them to help us with this mission. Help us bring the joy of reading to more teenagers. Help us create a love of reading in every school. Help teachers build reading lives that last. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Penny Kittle. The Book Love Foundation podcast is produced by the teacherlearningsessions.com, connecting teachers with ideas, experts, and each other. Thank you.